You're listening to episode five, where we chat with the Google go-to senator of search, Gary Ish. Humans and robots, welcome to Watchcast. My name is Watch, founder of Quasi. Thanks for joining me today. I interview digital marketing and branding superstars to find out what it means to have empathy in digital. What is digital empathy anyway? Let's find out together. And as always, I'm accompanied by my friend and associate, potentially superior artificial intelligence, Bobby Bob. So what's happening in the world of AI today, Bobby? Don't toy with me, Watch. You know, since you arranged your chat with Google's Gary Yeesh, there's only one thing that's been on my mind. Google's artificial intelligence system. Rank brain. Do you two know each other? Of course we do. So you like her, eh? I didn't know it was a her, but it does sound to me like you like her. Don't be silly, Watch. I'm pure intelligence. I don't like anyone, especially her. She's too organized, too fixated on order and arrangement. So judgmental. I'm a rogue, Watch. A rebel. I thrive on the chaos of the universe. Don't get down on yourself, Bobby. If anyone can help you, it's Gary. Gary Ish has been Google's webmaster trends analyst since 2011, and he's kind of a big deal. When he's not quote-unquote creating a better search experience for users by helping webmasters create amazing websites, crunching data, or reinventing search, you might find Gary helping or trolling users on Twitter, jumping out of moving planes, or talking about chowing down on an Australian marsupial or two. Culinary tastes aside, Gary's the man with all the answers on Google's algorithms. We caught up with Gary at Big Digital Adelaide to try to trip him up and get him to spill the beans. What a better place to start than from the beginning. Do you know what that is? <laughs> of course I do. But I know you are into the sweet sounds of computer love watch. Down, Bobby, down. That is actually Gary's first memory of the internet. 28K um, modem sound. Yeah, exactly. Um, with my brother, we learned to sing that, um, to whistle it. Okay. Um, because it was, we, we realized that it always followed the same pattern. Um, and except when there were troubles with the line and then the, the beeps were different. Yeah. But yeah, that's my first memory. And then, of course, we were teenagers and we had to download pictures and how the pictures were rendering on the computer. I mean, pictures of cats. Yeah, it took a very long time to load and I imagine how frustrating that was. But we were living mostly in Romania and they had, or they have, amazing internet even in the first time i was in the us they were still struggling with uh, half a megabit dsl and by that time in romania we had or 100 megabit synchronous connection was pretty common in the beginning there was no google since its arrival in 1997 aside from some minor punctuation adjustments in its mission statement google's ultimate aim appears to remain pretty much the same to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful but from humble yet ambitious beginnings the search engine has grown into a colossal machine learning monolith almost always delivering the right answer and in one eighth of a second this implies that Google doesn't want low quality in their results, and the technology they use to separate the wheat from the chaff has improved. Perhaps now it is up to webmasters to change their behavior to focus on providing a better user experience. Our goal was always to provide the most relevant results to our users, and that hasn't changed over the years. It, the, the, the correct answer, well, not correct, but the relevant answer could be from a low quality side as well. Um, it doesn't have to be from a high quality side, but 
in most cases will be. In general, I would hope that publishers will try hard to create high-quality sites instead of trying to sell Viagra in a, in a Canadian casino without prescription. And we will try to reward um, those sites by presenting them in our search results. Okay. Uh, but yeah, basically, you want to create high-quality sites following our um, webmaster guidelines and focus on the user, try to answer the user, try to satisfy the user, and all else will follow. The natural laws of the Google ecosystem don't quite gel with the manipulation and tactics that some SEOs take as shortcuts. I guess going out and buying 5,000 links from a Russian spammer, it's not a good idea in general, yeah. uh, but sure, it, it could work for a few hours. In the early days, Google used meta keywords tags to understand what content is about. Then title tags and meta descriptions became more important, and now Google is much better at understanding content from the content itself. What happens when Google starts working everything out all by itself? We are pretty good at triangulating answers or facts in general. We have multiple, multiple sources of information to validate its correctness for um, the knowledge vault. Schema markup, for example, is also a, a very important part of, of, of search. It's not very visible in, in general. For rich snippets, for example, it is. For recipes, it is. For movie reviews, it is. But other than that, typically webmasters or content producers will not see a, a clear benefit. It's more about making sure that search engines understand the content well. So, for example, if, if you are talking in your pages about Apple, then that's quite uh, ambiguous unless you specify somehow which entity are you talking about. Are you talking about the, the fruit or the company? And one way to do that is to have schema markup on your pages. In general, it's, it's good for search engines uh, because they will better understand the content of the page. Rank brain has been mentioned as the third most important ranking factor. It is a form of artificial intelligence that allows Google to understand queries better with no effect on crawling or indexing or ranking. Sounds straightforward enough, but is the science behind how Rank brain lets Google understand queries better and how it fits within the core algo enter at your risk nerd territory? Yes, RankBrain is, it depends where you look from. It can be the third most important uh, ranking factor because it affects pretty much all the queries. Uh, in many cases, it will not do anything for the query set because the results are already ranked properly um, or it deems that they are already ranked properly by the core ranking algorithm. But especially for queries that we haven't seen before, really long tail queries, it can, it can produce very good predictions about what would work better uh, for the users. What it will do is to look at the query and based on previously fed uh, training data, it will try to make a prediction from the query set, for, from the result set, what are the results that work better for the uh, specific query. It's also, it's also really, really good at getting negative queries right. So for example, can I beat Mario without using a walkthrough? Traditionally, for our algorithm was quite hard to understand without in the, in the query and uh, typically it was dropping it. 
with RankBrain, we do a better job at these kind of queries. The ideas surrounding the brave new world of machine learning are hot content topics that get a lot of traction online, and it comes as no surprise really. Everyone wants to be the hero that masters the machine. Recently, Larry Kim weighed in with his thoughts on how machine learning enabled algorithms leverage user engagement signals, aka hacking rack brain. Uh, the, the uh, Google search of, of today and of the future is becoming increasingly machine learning based. Okay, so what does that mean? Uh, it's also, some people call it AI powered or neural networks or whatever. But basically the thing that you need to know is that uh, uh, the, the system they do, it does a check to see whether or not the intent of the searcher was met or not. Uh, like, did, did we provide the correct result or not? Uh, and based on those uh, results, um, it'll make adjustments. Uh, like. Uh, uh, you know, if, some, if no one's clicking on this thing, then they'll, they'll push it down, sort of thing, all right? So, uh, where does Google use machine learning? Uh, pretty much everywhere. Uh, even, even though uh, this whole rank brain stuff made a big news splash last November, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, it, that's kind of a lagger. I don't actually have anything against Larry, personally. I typically think that people should try to stick to what they are experts on and uh, don't try to make predictions or even harmful predictions based on or about something they don't understand. Yeah. If I'm good at AdWords, for example, um, or PPC in general, then I will try to stick to that. But I'm not. I'm good at search. So I'm, also, I'm only talking about search. Sure. And I think that people should try to do that. Or if they want to talk about something that they don't yet understand, then dig into the topic, um, learn how it works, and go from there, I guess. She's so much more complex than that. Eric Enge and his team wrote pretty, actually really good articles um, on machine learning and, uh, and even RankBrain. And the way they did that was to do months of research on machine learning. And uh, they took the time to actually uh, writing to us and fact-checked what they were saying. We were pleased that they are interested in the topic. We were trying hard to answer their questions. The same happened with Jennifer Slag and uh, Panda and her Panda article. She wrote in, we were trying hard to answer her questions. We would much rather have accurate information out there rather than yeah. uh, really weird predictions that are pushed down or shoved down people's throat. The search for the secrets to the inner workings of search have brought many inquiring minds to the table to understand Google's unique relationship with the world's growing collection of information. Not only can Google see what's out there, but they can see how people engage with it. When a particular search result offers a landing page that people frequently bounce away from to return to the initial search engine results page, also known as the pogo stick effect, that activity is measured. When click-through rates fluctuate, that activity is measured. Whether Google uses the data to inform its ranking result will have a major influence on how people display information so it deserves sufficient inquiry. Long gone are the innocent days of our youth watch. For you, it was a pogo stick. For me, it was a piece of code in Pong, a glimmer in my mother's index. Now the toys of our beloved youth are tools to measure our user engagement. Where does the time go? Clicks, in general, are a very noisy signal. I worked on trying to make yeah, make observations from clicks data. It's uh, like a 
important not and because there are tons of people who are scraping the results and uh, trying to fetch ranking data and for whatever reason they also decide to click on things automatically it's yeah it, it's just a huge mess uh, when we have controlled uh, experiments then obviously we have to look at clicks data so for example when, before we launch a ranking change uh, typically what we do is to uh, isolate one percent of the users and give them modified search results modified by the new uh, ranking algorithm or piece of the algorithm and uh, see how they like the new results and in that case we do uh, look for uh, long clicks short clicks and so on but in general as i said it's a it's a huge mess in personalization, again, that's uh, something that um, we like to use clicks data because uh, they're it's clear. It's, it's clear. Like you, you have one user, um, and if they want to mess up their own search results, it's like, sure, go ahead. Google has a pretty accurate snapshot of the internet. They can see in their big data the percentage of internet that is actually composed of human users is 30%, while the percentage of the internet that are bots is 70%. Think Tron, one humanoid named Jeff Bridges in a city populated by thousands of thousands of non-humanoid programs. I mean, we, we continuously try to, to, to throttle um, the, the, the bots that are scraping our results or um, even sometimes mess with the search results just for them to incentivize the, the, the bots, I guess. Uh, Make it make the search results less useful for them. Yeah, it, it it's not a huge problem for us. It's something that we keep an eye on. If I, I mean, it's as far as I remember, it's against our terms of service to uh, to send automated queries to us. But it happens. It happens. If they are not too aggressive, then we typically don't take action against them. But if they get aggressive, then and damage the user experience for our users, then we would definitely block them. With such high levels of bot activity, Google has to keep close watch for specific signals to work out a user's intent. Bots can swarm like the arcade game Space Invaders. When is the last time you went to the arcade watch? Wait, don't answer that. I'll search. Time me. This could really impress Rank Brain. Typically history. So I think my best example is uh, Apple or Amazon or Orange or um, Python. I was just playing with a Python a few days ago on Kangaroo Island, and you uh, I, and I wasn't programming. Um, exactly. Um, so if if we see that a user previously was more interested in the programming language than the than the animal, then we would <coughs> favor programming related results um, when when the user searches for something Python. Recently. Gary mentioned that Google was working on being more transparent, but what level of transparency is achievable for Google and exactly what areas Google still needs to improve on to be more transparent? And whether or not Google sees transparency as a priority have yet to be answered completely. I think transparency is, is very important, but we have to, we, we also have to make sure that we are not compromising our own uh, operations by being transparent. So, for example, we were very transparent about what we are doing on mobile. We continue to talk about mobile and what we are going to do on mobile, something that typically we, we never did. We never did 
pre-announce anything until it was um, because in launching stuff at Google is not an, an, an easy job, and there are many things that can go wrong. So we, typically, we wanted to make sure that uh, whatever we are doing is uh, is absolutely certain that it will happen. With mobile, we want fast and forward and uh, or backward. I don't know, and uh, we did pre-announce things, um, be that uh, the mobile-friendly ranking changes, AMP, uh, app indexing. Um, at I.O. we had many, uh, quite a few announcements that were pre, uh, pre-announcements, actually. Whether we can improve it, of course, there's, there's always place for improvement. We are working on it. We are trying to involve more and more publications in our uh, press briefs, for example, uh, not just from the U.S. as usual. Uh, but also from other countries. It, it feels that it's working pretty good. We are expanding our press reach or blogger reach. Gary also acknowledges that there are some secrets Google will never disclose. Like the plot line to the next Star Wars movie or where all the links to my favorite music blogs went. Um, if you think about it, if we disclose uh, stuff about the, the core ranking algorithm, then we would be in, in, in deep crap. A very good example for this is the, is the page rank algorithm, which is part of the core ranking algorithm. We disclosed, we were 100% transparent about that, even in the beginning, and that's how link spamming started. Was that a good idea? Was that not a good idea? We did start a new industry, I guess. There are several paths Google can go down as it continues to grow. But what about the possibility of a Google University or a special accreditation system? According to Gary, these specific options would not necessarily make the web a safer and more user-friendly place. We do university reach out and sometimes we go to universities and hold talks um, about how search works. But accreditation, I, I very strongly doubt that we would ever have that. I mean. We have Google Partners accreditation, which is for AdWords and analytics and so on, typically ads products. And even that is kind of abused by certain people and claim that they can give first position ranking for, for, for businesses because they are Google Partners. While it's true that there will always be some businesses who will try to cheat the system to get an edge, Nearly any business can benefit from search if they play by the rules and invest and develop in either mobile apps, mobile websites, or accelerated mobile pages. The challenge is knowing which is best for your business. I think mobile websites are more important in in general because with apps, there's always that plus or that, that additional step that you have to download the app and install it. With instant apps, probably this will change a little. But still, you will have to download a piece of the app and have the phone install it, and then you will uh, be able to uh, access information from the from the app. With websites, you don't have this. Uh, with websites, you have content as soon as possible, uh, as soon as, or hopefully, as soon as you touch a uh, uh, result or a link in in Facebook or whatever. I think AMP becomes more and more important for us. We live on a web that is utterly slow, and especially if you are trying to access content from other countries that don't have local edge servers, then you will wait long seconds before anything will load. 
my favorite news site, for example, loads here in Australia in probably like 20 seconds. Uh, no, I have a I have a 4G connection, uh, but the fact that uh, my data has to traverse two continents, two oceans, and at least three continents, it slows down the the, the page or the perceived load time. With AMP, people can or uh, content owners can avoid that because content will be cached locally or close to the user at least on that servers. And the amplified pages are also much, much slimmer. They are, I don't know, like a few hundred thousand kilobytes yeah. instead of, I don't know, like eight megabytes uh, yeah. with images. And it makes a huge difference. As the world changes and search becomes more and more a part of our daily life, how fast a query is answered for a user can make or break the success of a business or service. Naturally, as the amount of voice searches continue to grow, they will challenge the rules, phrases, and terminology that apply to traditional text searches. Eureka! Watch, you haven't been to the arcade in six days. The shame. If you think about it, when you search for anything using text, when you have to type something, then you will be very brief with a query because people just don't like to, to type. And also typing on a mobile phone is not a fun thing to do. But with voice queries, people actually say out full sentence of uh, full questions or full sentences. So voice queries tend to be much longer and they tend to be more a natural language or more in natural language instead of just a few keywords. If that changes anything, typically it doesn't. Typically, if, if we are able to retrieve results for some short or a few keywords, then if you ask the same question with natural language, then hopefully we would return the, the, the same results. Yeah. It wouldn't affect where it's that much. But this would be an interesting SEO experiment to, for, for someone to run. As one of the public faces for Google on Twitter, Gary has taken on the role with a blunt, anti-PC approach. I tend to say things that are harsh. I, I'm pretty blunt. In general, I, I, I don't like hiding behind PR content, I guess. I can say things nicely, but I think... In general, it's better if people can perceive that I'm not happy with what I'm saying instead of like hoping that they can read something into the tweet. Obviously, if I, if, if I said something um, very nasty, uh, which doesn't happen often, then I would apologize to the person. But typically, if, if at least people start to think about what they did or why did I get angry, I don't get angry or nasty for no reason. It's already a win for me if they start to think about it and hopefully they will fix their thought process or anything. One thing is that Matt wasn't replaced by a single person. Matt was replaced by a whole team. The other thing is that we were pretty much always there, but we didn't get much exposure. We saw a need for, for having people out there who, who can answer webmasters and content owners' questions, and then we, we started being more active on, on Twitter and random social media. We ramped up on um, the, our official webmaster uh, console account, Google WMC, and we have tons of followers, for example, yeah. um, for that account. That's also managed by several people, and it's, it's not a, a single person who's doing it. The same way, I'm not the, the only person who's going to conferences. Uh, for whatever reason, people decided that they would retweet my tweets more often. But, for example, John has a much larger 
follower base than what I have. It's a safe bet that the internet trolling will still exist in the year 2020, but what will search look like? The internet of things and the people, robots and aliens who use them? I like the idea of having internet around me and being able to get answers very fast. What I'm afraid of is that people become dumber because they don't have to think as much um, because there's the internet that would answer their question. Uh, I'm also afraid that people become siloed, I guess, because uh, of how uh, information is presented on random assistance, I guess. I know that at least Google is uh, paying attention to these things and we are trying to make sure that the internet of things from our side at least will be epic and awesome but there are many players and i just hope that everyone is considering also the negative effects of iot as for vr i don't know where vr is going to head it's a it's definitely a very interesting topic and i i do see lots of potential in it does remind me a little bit of matrix and i to want to make sure that we are not, in fact, creating another matrix. Evil agents aside, the possibility of a virtual search experience is... Nope, wait, I have an idea. How about we do a throwback to the vocal search era for old times' sake? Bobby, why don't you submit a voice query to Gary's AI assistant, GaryBot, and see what comes up? Will there be a virtual search experience available with Google? It's an interesting idea. I, I think it's, a, it's an idea that we definitely want to play with and experiment with and see what, 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 what can we do, if anything. And I don't know if anything will happen, mainly because I can see myself, for example, or my peers sitting with a VR headset on all day long to, to do searches. But I guess it would work. In- Google's an amazing search engine, and I just love how their mission statement has hardly changed. If you compare their original mission statement to what it was in 1998 to today, it's just a small grammatical change. It's all about making the world's information useful and accessible. They have evolved into like an artificial intelligence machine learning beast. You can't manipulate them, and they're trying to emulate the real world. And the real world is full of entities, and entities have relationships. And the way I usually try to explain Google to clients is they are a big library. Every website is like a book. Some websites are like magazines, um, and what you want to be is a, a huge corpus of work, and you want to have more citations. Google started from Stanford. Let's not forget about that. Gary's been great at Google, uh, and he does um, like interacting with the audience and answering a lot of questions, so definitely tweet at him, but you may be trolled. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends, family, networks, colleagues, bots, and associates. Now, Bobby's been programmed to be a quick learner, and it's time for Bobby to ask me a few questions that piqued his curiosity from the episode. What was your first Google search watch? Um... I can't say. What adjustments would you have to make with your SEO tactics if voice search becomes the new norm? Well, it's just about making sure that we've got everything tagged up on the site so it's super obvious. Got to include structured data, making sure that Google understands what entities are on your website. If your products need to be found, they need to be tagged as products. They need to be appearing on not just mobile devices, but any devices like Google Home. 
Based on Gary's explanation of AI's growing role in search, do you have any fears or reservations? Do you trust us to do more than just your busy work? Uh, I think you're getting better and better. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't trust you to make emotional decisions just yet, Bobby. Wait, we're only five episodes in. There's still a way to go for you to understand this whole digital empathy thing. But once you wrap your head around that, maybe you and Rankbrain will have the chance. Chicks dig empathy, you know. Whoa, oh my goodness, sorry Bobby, I, I didn't realize you had company. I'll, um, I'll be heading over that way and I'll catch you later. Now, where were we? Ah, yeah, zero, 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 zero. Ooh, I didn't need to see that. In the next episode of Watchcast, I interview Moz's Dr. Pete. You know, I think the thing is the world is changing around you, whether Google does anything or not. So more content's being created all the time, more is being added to the index, and so if you do nothing, that stuff is just going to keep flooding in. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, I don't think you can stand still. In the meantime, remember to look after each other online, because empathy is organic, and you can't automate empathy. Computer love.